0: Welcome to the Veterans Breakfast Club, where veterans tell their stories. I'm Todd DiPastino, director of the Veterans Breakfast Club and host of today's program, which is a live recording of one of our storytelling events in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The Veterans Breakfast Club is a nonprofit with a simple mission to give every veteran a chance to tell his or her story. We do this in our public storytelling programs, where veterans of all eras share their memories in their own words. For more information, visit us at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Enjoy the program. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Todd. I'm the director of the Veterans Breakfast Club, and thank you for coming out here to Vintage and East Liberty for our first Veterans Breakfast here in this area. Uh, We've been doing these events for eight years. And our mission is to gather veterans with just members of the public and have the veterans share their stories. And we want all veterans, all ages. Uh, last year, we had a 102-year-old vet tell a story, a Navy vet. And we had a 24-year-old Marine veteran. He was already a veteran at age 24 tell a story. And we've had everything in between. We've had Coast Guard and Army and Navy and Air Force. And uh, that's about it, right? Merchant Marine? Do I leave out any branch? Nope. <laughs> <Maybe there. laughs> Marines. I always like to leave out the Marines and. No, no. no. Uh, all right. Somebody got it. Uh, so, so we don't care if you liked it or didn't like it. We want to hear your stories. You know, it doesn't matter if you served in combat or not. It's just I'm not a vet. I teach history, and so it's just fascinating for me to finally, after all these years of teaching and reading. Uh, to, to meet people who did the things that I'd only read about. Uh, I teach a course on the Vietnam War. So when I talk to somebody like Robert who served in Vietnam, I'm fascinated by that. Uh, and, and so our idea is we just go around with the room with the microphone and you know get you men and women to, to share stories. We stop the program at 10.30. We have to limit the amount of time you have at the mic. So don't be offended if I rip the mic from you, okay, Nick? <laughs> if you start talking, I'll just take the, take the microphone away. But I, I really wanna thank Tom for hosting us here at Vintage sure
1: todd thank you very much um so on behalf of vintage and our amazing active older adults i want to to welcome you to this beautiful beautiful facility um and uh some of you history buffs might remember that 25 years ago this was a giant eagle supermarket anybody remember that yeah, a lot of history here. So, um, this is really a dream come true for Vintage. We have for a long, long time wanted to reach out more to the veteran community. weren't quite sure how to do that. And working with Leadership Pittsburgh um, and this um, uh, the community leadership course for veterans just really this the, it, it made the dream become a reality. And uh, we didn't even know this vintage this breakfast club existed. And it's just very, very exciting for us to have this here today. Um, I've talked about all the volunteers that made this happen today and and thanked all of our volunteers and so glad you're here. Uh, One of the reasons we've wanted to reach out to veterans is because we have so many amazing services here that you can benefit from. Uh, We're open Monday through Friday, eight to five, and we have a very vast array of services um, for active older adults. So we have, with membership, we have free exercise and an amazing number of exercise options a wonderful fitness studio, lots of recreational programs, trips, and not to mention, not last but not least, a thriving uh, billiards room, which is a very happening place. So um, I hope you'll come back and visit us. If you'd like to take a walk around the building, if you'd like a tour after the meeting's over with to get today, uh, please um, look me up and I'll be happy to show you around. And then in closing, I just want to pay tribute and thanks to all of our veterans here today and your service to our country and our freedom. And um, I want to acknowledge uh, the vintage veterans who are here today who uh, honor us with their presence every day. So if you're a vintage veteran, raise your hand. So thank you, thank you very
0: much, and enjoy the program. Uh, Tom, I have a question for you. Yes, sure. Sure. Thank you for hosting this event. Sure. And I know that you wanted to kind of do something around the veterans that you have here. Maybe if this works out well and we don't destroy the place, could we do this again? That would be amazing. We would love that. <laughs> Absolutely. Nothing <laughs> like putting you on the spot, but thank you very much, Tom. We would love to do it again. Uh, we are, the Veterans Breakfast Club is a nonprofit. We've been doing this for eight years and we do donations and grants and, and we also do sponsors and we're very grateful when we have somebody who can sponsor a breakfast. And today, we have Community Life. And uh, Catherine Hurt from Community Life is here. Thank you, Catherine, very much for coming out and sponsoring this breakfast.
2: I just want to
3: say thank you to everybody here, the volunteers, the veterans, the vintage staff. It is such an honor to be able to um, sponsor an event like this. Um, I also want to thank you for your service. Being at Community Life, I have had the pleasure of hearing so many of our veterans' stories, and I look forward to hearing everyone's stories today. And if you have any questions about Community Life, I'll be here through the whole program.
0: So please come find me, okay? Thank you. That's all you have to say, huh? That's all. I oh. didn't want to take away from the program. <laughs> no, that's great. But but you will be here after the program if people have questions or Absolutely. want to get involved. Absolutely. Okay. I
3: could talk about community life all day long. And you've so left you information stay, on the tables.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. Okay, this is our newsletter. It has our schedule through December. If you'd like to attend at another location, we do about 20 locations. We do morning and we do evening for the younger vets. In fact, we have Nick Grimes here. Nick, where are you? Are you in the room? Nick is a young Army vet who is our director of our Post 9-11 Veterans Storytelling Project, because we found that when we were having events on a Tuesday morning or a Wednesday morning, we were getting older, retired vets. So we did some research, and we discovered that the young vets have something called a job. I know, it's so sad. It's sad. And so they, you know, they, they weren't available on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Friday morning, so we started holding events in the evening, and Nick is in charge of that program. And there is Nick, if you want to raise your hand. So we have, uh, we have events all over. And and Nick, we have an event coming up downtown, right? Do you want to say a few words about that?
3: Thank you guys for all coming out this morning. Our next post-9-11 event is going to be this coming up Wednesday at the Smallman Galley over in the Strip District. There will be food provided, cash bar. We
4: would love to have anyone come that wants to join us. Uh, We think it's really important to have the younger vets in room with the older vets to kind of share experiences with each other.
0: Yes, and that has turned out, that's a really unexpected thing. I, at least I didn't expect it. How great it is to have the older veterans mix in with the younger veterans and you know support the young vets and, and tell a story and ask each other questions. So everybody is welcome at this event. It's a free event. Free event, If yeah. you want to buy booze, you're on your own. Yeah, everything's right? provided except for the alcohol. Everything's provided but the alcohol. Because we couldn't afford it for some of you guys. <laughs> And that's at Smallman Galley, which is 21st Street in the Strip District. 54 21st Street. 54 21st Street. Yeah, and that's Wednesday at 6 p.m., so we'd love to have you join us. That's Wednesday at 6 p.m. Great. Thank you, Nick. And uh, the other events that we have scheduled are here on this uh, newsletter. Please take one as you leave, and it'll let you know where our other events are. We'd love to have you at any events. If you want to have breakfast in the morning events, you pay 12 bucks generally. Uh, If you don't, eat. And we have about 20% or 15% of the people who attend our events don't eat. It's free. You just come in and enjoy the program. Um, We have stuff for sale. What we've done is... Uh, we created a magazine called Veteran Voices, the magazine of the Veterans Breakfast Club, where we take the stories that have been told uh, over the course of the year, and Kevin, Farkas, and I put it together in a nice magazine with photographs, and we write up their stories. That's 10 bucks if you want a copy. We have shirts. We have hats. We have a wonderful biography of a World War II cartoonist named Bill Malden. I'm guessing... Hardly anybody in this room is old enough to remember who Bill Malden was, but he was at one time a big celebrity. He's the youngest Pulitzer Prize winner in history. He was an infantryman in World War II with the 45th Infantry Division, and he got out of combat by doing these gritty, realistic, very darkly sardonic cartoons about what life in combat was like, and it won him a Pulitzer Prize. He was 24 years old. He came home a millionaire, and his life fell apart. And uh, I wrote his biography. So I could tell you it's a good book, So <laughs> I wrote it. So if you want a copy of it, it's 10 bucks. Um, Kevin Farkas is the director of our Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh Storytelling Project. And he's, uh, there he is right now. He's a Navy veteran. And Kevin is recording. Excuse me? I said, all right. Yeah, Navy's OK. Yeah. <laughs> And he's recording the event, the stories today, and he's taking photographs and eventually you'll edit them and you'll put them up on our website. Would you like to say a word about that? Thank you all for being here and sharing your stories. So we have a, a, about five microphones in a room today, actually. Uh, the main ones are here. If I could just request if you hold this, hold it nice firmly, point it right at your chin, because we record these for history's sake. Very important. We have about 800 stories on record. These live events are as important as our sit-down interviews as well. So uh, don't mind me, I have the camera, I'll be around flashing in your face, so sorry about that. But we, we like to have the pictures that go along with the voices here today. But uh, So this is our, our program here, Veteran Voices of Pittsburgh. We have two websites. You'll see them at the top of the newsletter. I hope you get a newsletter today, look at the top. Go check out our stories, our interviews, and all the other events that we have. This event will be up there eventually. So if you do speak, you'll be famous after today, right? You'll be famous. Very good. Thanks. Thank you, Kevin, very much. And once again, you don't have to have liked it. Uh, you know, we wanna hear the good stories, the bad stories in between. Nick Grimes had a great idea of, of having people share stories about the stupidest thing they were asked to do in the service, and he had a lot of ideas about that. Uh, so yeah, we welcome all kinds of, all kinds of stories um, from all kinds of branches. I want to make another, one, another announcement. I think this is the final announcement. There is a wonderful event on Veterans Day at Duquesne University. If you're available, we would love to have you. This is an, our 18th annual Veterans Day breakfast. It is a, a group of us put this thing on. It started with a bunch of Vietnam veterans, friends of Da Nang. They started holding it in the 90s, and other people have joined in to help out. Last year, we had about 700 people at Duquesne University. There's usually a, a keynote speaker, a wonderful breakfast, and then we do a storytelling event where I go through the room with the microphone and have the veterans share stories as the Duquesne University students stand around and listen. And it is absolutely a magical event. Uh, we do free shuttles down, it's a free event if you come with us. If you wanna come, you can drive yourself down there, let me know you're coming uh, so we know how many tables to reserve. If you need a ride down and if you live near um, uh, the Comfort Inn on Island Road in Penn Hills, we're running a shuttle down from the Comfort Inn. And just take this here. You could either, you could fill it out and leave it with me today if you want, if you think you can make it, or you can mail it in, or you could email me, or you could call me. Just let me know that you're coming so that we know that you're on your list. We'll have, a ta- we'll have a chair for you. It's a wonderful event. You don't have to be a veteran to attend. You know, so spouses, children, everybody's welcome. Please consider joining it. I know Veterans Day can be a busy day, but if you could, if you have the morning open, uh, we'd love to have you join us. Also, Morris reminded me. He asked a question about getting into the, the you know the VA system, getting a veterans ID. We really like to connect veterans to resources and to services that they're entitled to. We really want to help veterans kind of get connected uh, with the VA or with, with other organizations. And so we often have a representative from PA Serves and their mission, their job, is to connect veterans to resources. And today, I think we don't have a PA Serves rep here, but we can still help you out because what we'll do is we'll take your name, we'll take your contact information, and we'll give it to PA Serves, and man, they are good. They will call you the next day and they will work hard on your behalf.
4: Yes? I'm the VFW county rep for service officers.
0: Wonderful, Jim here is the, is the VFW county rep for service officers. So even though that you're wearing a pumpkin hat, you are still a reliable source. Don't let the hat fool you. No, don't let the hat pull you, because okay. this
4: is one of many. Okay. As, as they say, I'm a person of many hats. But yeah, I've, uh, I've been a service officer for District 29, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, for the past 10 years. And I have a direct connection to the federal building and the service okay. officers down there.
0: So if people need help... Yeah. You do help not or-
4: have to belong to any organization in order to have a service officer help you. Okay. You just have to have been a
0: vet. Okay. Thank you very much, Jim. Right. Thank you. All right, we have um, Chuck Spring with us today. Chuck, would you mind standing up? I thought we'd kick off with, with having you uh, tell a story because Chuck uh, has come to our events before and, um, and he sent in the mail to me pictures of himself in the service. And I do ask you, if we do this again, we'd love to do this again. If you could bring pictures of yourself in the Marines, you know, or in the Air Force, what I do is I just make a copy of your picture and I throw it up on the screen, and then I put you on the spot and have you talk about it. So, Chuck, you sent me some great pictures of your service in the Air Force, and I was wondering if you, if you could say a few words about it. Now, remember, limited amount of time, and I know we have a lot of pictures to get through, but uh, this is you.
3: Yes, that was me. In March or April of 1963 at uh, Shepherd Air Force Base, uh, my technical training. How old were you? 18.
0: You were 18 years old. That,
3: that was my first
0: job. Your first job. How did you end up in the Air Force?
3: Uh, it's a long story. Uh, I went to California with my uncle in Pomona, California. We went to uh, junior college. And uh, fortunately, I didn't do well. I got, I got five Ds. <laughs> And so, I don't know how, when you're young, you know, I was just just 18 then, uh, we decided, about a whole bunch of us, I don't know how many, let's join the Air Force.
0: Why did you pick the Air Force? I don't know. From what I've heard over the years, talking to vets, that was a good choice. Yeah. Well,
3: yeah. <laughs> well, but so, I guess we were independent but so then I called my mother up and I says mom I just joined the Air Force I'll see you after basic she says okay that's all you know that was all um, that,
0: that was all and how how many weeks was basic training
3: uh, maybe six weeks okay it wasn't as as severe as other services but still you had to go through the ropes
0: it wasn't like marine boot camp was it no <laughs> not, even close. not even close
3: that's okay I I, I still love you guys <laughs>
0: So this is, is this to prepare for an inspection? Yes,
3: or? yes. And this is it, the, the uh, barracks. And look at the, uh, the, the sheets, the bed.
0: Yeah, well The made. sergeant
3: came and bounced a quarter off of it.
0: So they truly do that?
3: Oh, yes. And they had the white glove inspection. They go through your, your top of your, your locker and everything. And then if it's dirty, they put the finger in your uh, face and say, what's this?
0: And then if it's dirty, what's the punishment? Well,
3: I don't know, because I, it was never dirty for me.
0: Oh, so you because were okay. Because I knew what the... You were a good airman. Right. Okay. And that's a very polished floor.
3: Okay. Now, this is very unique. Now, I guess if you're not a military, you see, see, it's hard to see, but see the guys back there? They're in their skivvies. Yes. Now, you know what skivvies means? I do. Some people maybe never heard of that, but that's your underwear. <laughs> So anyways, we didn't have polishers, or we didn't have machines. So what we did was we put all the bunks on one side, and we get a row of waxers, and we would hand wax it, go down, and then when we got done hand waxing it, you get the GI blanket, and you get an airman inside that, and you pull them up and down, and that's how you wax the floor. (laughs) No, no.
0: Are you serious? So, first of all, you're saying that in the Air Force, you do have to wax the floor, because I had heard you didn't.
3: But, but does, it, does it Army look thing. like we
0: didn't wax the floor? Okay. All right. Okay. So, you did. You, you can see your...
3: Yes. And that's how... That's the buffer.
0: You put a GI in a blanket. Or put an airman in a blanket.
3: In a GI blanket, because it's wool.
0: Right. And this looks like you're having fun with your buddies.
3: Right. And see, can you pick me out? Um, the right.
0: Right here. Yes. Yeah.
3: And that was tech school, and uh, even though there's just some shenanigans in there, but we were all bonded together and you know, do you see how the hats were like bubbled? yes what you do is you get a you get a balloon, you wet your hat and you put starch in it and then that's how it comes like a hard hat see see like the guy on the left
0: was that like a style? Well that
3: was just our division or like our our Trademark, right? Our uh, division at of- uh, Shepherd Air Force Base.
0: Did anybody else do that with their hats? Yeah. No. You did that, really? Yeah. What did the Marines do? Do we have a? Oh, here's a mic. Hold on. I'm sorry, Chuck. Let's hear what the. You did something similar. No, we just dipped it in water and the. Uh, you dipped it in water. Yeah, it dipped it in water and starch, then pull it out. So that it's kind of stiff and. Yeah. Okay. Uh, block real nice. Okay. You <laughs> know. <And>, uh, <laughs> Eighth and I Yeah. Yeah, I could put mine on my head and it'll be all right. <laughs> okay. So there was a lot of attention to cover. your cover. You Marines call it a yeah, it's a not cover. a hat, right? It's a cover. What w I'm sorry, Chuck, just one more interruption. No problem. I'm learning. In boot camp, if you referred to this as a hat, what would happen to you?
5: Oh, you'd you'd be uh doing push ups the rest of the day or running, but you never did call it. They tell you it's a cover and you never use the word hat. Really? That's right. You'd be in some trouble.
0: George, is that true? Oh, yeah. It's a cover. It's a cover. <laughs> okay. But in the Air Force, it's a hat, right?
3: Right. Now, to pee off your, your fellow airman, you know what you do? You grab his hat and do torque it.
0: Like turn it to the
3: side? Oh, twist it. And then it gets all crinkly and that's that's not a good thing to do, but we did that. <laughs> Is that you? Yes, th- that was the tech school. And uh, Now, it sounds like I was important. Uh, my M.O. was electrical power production specialist.
0: That sounds important.
3: So what I did was Stateside in Oregon for two years, I ran a base power plant, so we did the electricity. So when we did the war games... We would sink in with commercial power, drop commercial power, and we, we, we'd we be isolated with our own
0: power. Okay, okay. So you could be self-sustaining kind of with your own power. Right. And they sent you overseas to Vietnam.
3: Right. Well, two years, I was at Oregon, and then my last year and a half was Philippines. And so I didn't realize it, but Philippines was 1,000 miles from Vietnam.
0: And what year did you, when did you arrive in Vietnam?
3: Well, I arrived at Clark in 64. Late sixty-four, early sixty-five.
0: So Clark in in sixty-five. I'm imagining you didn't even know where Vietnam was or what Vietnam was because the war hadn't really ramped up until about mid nineteen sixty-five, right?
3: Well, yeah, but but there was. To be honest with you, there was Vietnam even was in the late fifties when advisors was in Laos.
0: Right, but it's not but, that there wasn't publicized. Wasn't publicized.
3: So first of all, I'm a support. And um, I, I got to back up first. When I, w- I wanted to start out my talk with my heartfelt salute to best of all these veterans, women in here, and men that served. They're a great honor to be with. I just wanted to start the program with that. So anyways, we knew, we knew something was going on. When we look out in the flight line at Clark, the bags would be on the flight line. You would see them. All the time.
0: The body's coming home?
3: Yes. Coming out of the C-130s.
0: So you knew something was going oh, on yeah. in Vietnam.
3: And then, and then we would hear stories, see, because that was a mobile comm outfit. The Air Force, whenever you need people, at at a drop of the hat, they they would send you with radar or air placement or electronics or diesel mechanic. That was me.
0: So you knew that you were eventually going to go there. You suspected. Right.
3: And we hear stories back from some of the guys in the field you know, whatever.
0: Can I ask you what your first impression was of Vietnam when you arrived? Do you remember kind of stepping off the plane? And-
3: well, yeah, I, I guess I didn't know this, but I, I guess a guy above me was looking after me because we, we took a commercial airline from Clark to Da Nang. There was no military. There was it, it, military machineries was all booked up. And we took ground fire. The airplane got hit.
0: Your airplane, when you were landing, arriving, got hit. Landing
3: here. at Da Nang. Because the pilot command says we got hit, but we, it didn't take us down. So I said, wow. You know what I mean? I mean, that was my first ex- expression of Da Nang. And Da Nang was the busiest airport in the world then. You know, they had the tents right over the, the flight line.
0: So you knew, okay, that was your introduction to you were entering a war zone and life was going to be different. Right. Uh, this is a sign of where you were...
3: And you can see, maybe you can tell, you can see how far up we were at, we were at Dong Ha, which was 10 miles from the DMZ.
0: Here's the DMZ, the demilitarized zone and between. And
3: you can, and you, right down there, you can see a little circle. That's where Dong Ha was. It was okay. a radar site.
0: So you were way up north of South Vietnam. And that's
3: where they, west or left of you, which was west, I guess, the, the infiltration of the Viet Cong would come down through. Okay.
0: So what was your job? Uh, maybe you could explain this photo, then I'll ask you what your job was there in Dong Ha.
3: Well, see, here, it took. you think I was in the Air Force, and they would fly me up on a a, a big chopper or whatever. Here, this is a forward spotter aircraft that they would use to spot, you know, rockets or, or aircraft. They didn't have GPS, and, so they flew me up in a, a seven-passenger airplane. And I'm saying, wow. <laughs> We'd fly out to the ocean and come back in, and we landed two other times, and we landed in there. So that's what the Air Force set me up on. And that's our airport hangar, so you could see how big the place was. It was just a dirt strip. It was no concrete or anything.
0: And how many people were there with you? 150. 150 people? Yeah. Pretty isolated? I mean, not it, much around you?
3: It, 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 it little dead trees, and then all around us, then two miles out or three miles out, all around us was jungle, and that's where Charlie mortared
0: us from. So you did get mortared there?
3: Well, I got mortared. See, first of all, I'm support. Even though I, I wear a Vietnam ribbon, I'm very proud of that, but even though you're in support, you're in harm's way. And so anyways, when the first thing I got off the plane and, uh, into, our, our, into our tents our other airman that was with our little group said, you got to know what incoming and outgoing is. And I says, I don't understand what that means. What incoming is, is the rockets or mortar shells. Outgoing is, see, we had some Army advisors there that that had some 105s or 155s, and they would be going off all the time. So, So,
0: Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Chuck, but that's interesting to me. You kind of have to learn... The difference between the stuff that's being shot by your own side over your heads and the stuff that the enemy is shooting at you. Right. And you've got to be able to hear that difference.
3: Right, right.
0: And do right. you learn that? Di- if you don't
6: hear it, you If you don't? If you don't hear it, you're dead. You know, because, because you can
0: hear hear the mortars coming out of the tube. You can hear it coming out of the tube. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that hollow tube sound.
6: The one that you hear, that's the one that's not going to kill
0: you. I don't know.
6: So anyways,
3: and I, I agree with him. So anyways, I guess Charlie knew that uh, the plane came in because he knows, uh, it's a crazy thing, but here's you have mama-sons cooking for you during the daytime and nighttime telling the enemy what's going on. And he says, okay, here's some new recruits coming, let's, let's scare them. So one o'clock in the morning, my tech sergeant says to me, get your weapon, get, get hit the berm, we, we took thirty rounds of M80s, mm. and it Lord saved all of us. No one, no one got hurt, but they dropped all around it.
0: Chuck, can I ask you a dumb question?
3: No, it's not dumb.
0: Yeah, it is. Were you scared? Yes. Does it go away?
3: No, but but I, I other things you try to put in your head beside that. You know what I mean? Good things. You know, like things like that. I was proud to serve. Okay. So. I didn't. I was a diesel mechanic, but I knew how to do a weapon. I knew I I was good at it. Right. But sitting there for a couple of hours waiting for the enemy to come was the longest night of my life. Oh, I can't
0: imagine that—that that sense of being on edge, waiting for it to happen.
3: Right. And Ugh. we know in only 150 of us, but the Lord was after us. Now, see, that's our bunkers. That's what I was sitting in.
0: You're sitting, what, is there like you go the inside? Holes.
3: There's holes in there. There's holes in there. Right.
0: And those, you, so when an attack was going to come, you went in there. Right. Okay. And this is another shot?
3: Right. And see, look at look at the men's room right there. Is that it? Yeah. That's the, <laughs> that's the men's room? <laughs> yes. The people in the field didn't have that deluxe stuff. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. That but was. see,
3: that's the radar. See, what my job was, you're going to ask me, is we had mobile generators. Yeah. Like 20 of them. And I, my main job was to keep them filled with diesel fuel and any maintenance, minor maintenance, the reason why they stopped, we got them fixed. So we were Duquesne Light. Right. And see, those are, those are radio towers and that. See, we'd be in communications with, for the last place up north for the planes going to Hanoi. We were closer to Hanoi than Saigon. So to give you an idea, see here it is we did our laundry out there.
0: Oh, I so mean, that, that's your laundry.
3: But to some guys, this was, was heaven, you know what I mean, having a roof over their head.
0: Yeah, right. You, you had it well compared to, Yes. I imagine, how some of these Marines.
3: Yeah. And this is, we're making an underground bunker, and look at my forearms. They, they were pretty hefty, oh, because yeah. making sandbags. I just noticed this <laughs> a couple years ago. You know, when you say, the sergeant says, make the sandbags, it's, it's, it's hot out. You didn't say, hey, sergeant, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. You just fill them up. You just do it. I can't remember ever saying, no, sergeant. You don't do that. Just like you don't say, I wear a hat.
0: I think some guys in this room did that. Said, no, sergeant. But they were colonels. <laughs> Jim said, yeah, but they were colonels. And so that's
3: the complete underground bunker. When we got mortared in January and then I was there in February, then we start realizing we need some more cover. You see, you can see the opening right there. Yeah. But I don't know if it would take if it would take a direct hit, it, what would happen. But at least we had some
0: cover. You had some kind of cover. And,
3: and then, what, this, what is this is what I found. See, that's a B fifty two there, and it held massive amount of bombs. And see, that's Vietnamese writing. There's a little pamphlet. The, the, the Vietnamese on the one side. It says, "If you want to live, sur- you know, surrender."
0: Okay. So they, they were kind of propaganda leaflets right. that we dropped over North right, Vietnam.
3: Right. Right. So that's my story, but. I always like to encourage other people through maybe what I've seen or other people have seen. I, I don't know how to say this, but I'm not saying this to have you people feel sorry for me. I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And I said to myself, if I can get over Vietnam, I can get through this. And so what I'm telling these, all these veterans, women and men that have things about themselves that maybe that is not good, just hold strong and
0: you'll survive. Thank you very much, Chuck. That was wonderful. And and you know, I kind of want to bounce off what you said about Vietnam. I'm sorry, John, but you're right next to me. Can I put you on the spot? Would you mind standing up? Sure. I understand you're a Marine. I don't know how I figured that out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You were in Vietnam. Yeah. And you're obviously a proud Marine. Yes. Why did you join the Marines and when?
5: I was watching uh, coming up John Wayne Sands of Evil Jimo, and I saw oh, the Marine Corps is tough. I said I'll go there.
0: What year was that? 64. Oh, 64. Yeah. So that was early. Yeah. So uh, it'd be, they sent you to Vietnam.
5: Yeah. I, when I first went in, I was an MP, and they told us uh, it's a two-year duty station, you know. But you know those officers, you know, they lied. <laughs> <laughs> you know once the war jumped off they said okay you going to you going to have a a, a one year duty station and then they were telling us in the MPs that uh, it was just a a police action i said okay police action no bad i said well i'm in the MPs i'll go over there and i'll be directing along, traffic right. you know directing traffic So I got my orders, I went to uh, the train station, Grand Central Station. I got hot inside, you know, and I had been to to two funeral, you know, as honor guards. And I walked outside and I seen caskets. As far as you can see, down to the left, three deep and three high and down to the right. I says, okay, this is your Marine Corps line again. This is serious. So I started getting in shape, you know? Then I went to California, and we went through training. Then we left for Vietnam in July 66. We got to Vietnam in August, late August of 66, and we're on the ship, same way John Wayne was on the ship, and you climb over the side of the ship, With that heavy pack on, you know, and if you didn't have a good grip, you would, you know, you would fall. So, you'd, you know, you better be in shape. And uh, they said we're not going to give you any ammunition. I'm saying Jesus Christ! (laughs) You know, in the movies, you're in those papa boats, you're in the papa boats, and you're heading for the shore, and you're loaded, you know, with ammunition. But they said the Navy didn't want the Marines on the ship <laughs> with no ammunition. <laughs> I said, you know, I was cussed. I there, mother, <laughs> what? And uh, we went around in a circle until everybody got lined up. Now we're heading into uh, to the shore. I'm saying, god damn it. And we go in, and as we get up there, we couldn't see because we're down below that drop hatch and we get up to the shore I said oh boy we gonna I, said, I don't know how we gonna do this but you know but I'm in shape because I know what I'm up to and they dropped the uh, ramp I seen it it shocked the mess out of me I seen these little kids walking around smoking cigarettes I said what the f- what people walking all around I said oh this is this is Vietnam <laughs> So we had to go to our hill about 20, 22 miles out. They still was treating us like idiots, you know? They only gave us 20 rounds of ammunition to go 22 miles inside, you know? This is what the Marine Corps was doing. I was like, mother! I got my ammunition, got in the uh, back of the uh, deuce and a quarter. I looked around. Most of those guys didn't know that this was serious stuff. I knew because I seen those caskets. <laughs> Half the guys on the, on the uh, deuce in the and sleep. sleeping. They were I said, oh, this is going to be a long year. We got to our hill. Luckily, we got to that hill without being attacked. And I'm looking. I'm saying, oh, I seen a guy on a water buffalo about a quarter mile out a guy or a kid something i said oh man this is pretty And i was oh wow look at the different greens and next you know i laugh at it now but it wasn't funny then they opened up somebody out in the bushes pa 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 we ducking and hitting and all this i said oh my goodness oh then i noticed that there were some vietnamese soldiers on our hill. I said, "Uh, what are they doing here? And they said they were North Vietnamese, captured North Vietnamese soldiers that were captured, and the South Vietnamese government trained them to go against the North. I'm saying, I do not believe this, you know? You don't know if you got a traitor in that group, and we're online, and they're, they're in the back up on the hill, just eating chicken and cookies and I said, oh, okay. Then my the first patrol I got wounded on, I was walking point.
0: And those the Vietnamese, they were some smart people. John, can I interrupt you and ask sure. you a question? Walking point, I know what that is. You're the first in the yeah. in, uh, patrol. Yeah. Is that something you volunteer for? No. Okay. No. I ask a lot of stupid questions. No. Okay. No. What they do, you know, I was always athletic, okay. you know,
5: and they seen that, you know, right. and John, okay, yeah, I'll go point, point. and went down uh, one side of this little gorge, little water running through, went up the other side, and there was a tree branch bent over the uh, trail. So, okay, I'm, I go step underneath the tree branch, and that's where a booby trap was. Oh. And it went up through my foot. What was it? A steak, a pungy steak. A pungy steak. Pungy steak. Oh! Went up through my foot. I'm in the hospital. They're taking care of me. Then my best friend, uh, he was, he got killed on a, an, on another patrol, and I'm laying in the hospital. I didn't even know my best friend was laying next to me. He was dead, you know. So I got through that, went all through d- dealing with them dumb officers. Uh, the last time I got wounded, we were on the patrol. I could tell you a ton of stories about them dumb officers. But we were on the patrol, and we were go- heading like 12 o'clock. We started getting shot at from 11 o'clock. We started going across this rice paddy. And there was a a dry area now they tell you don't turn around on that dry area you got two hundred guys There's, you're supposed to go through, go to the wood line, regroup turn around, and come back now this officer he says, okay, once we got to the you know to the knoll, okay, turn around now you got two hundred guys turning around in the area
0: in, you know, in this, wide open this big wide open
5: and they shot again. Two guys got killed. Both of them was shot in the head. Lieutenant, he was all ducking down. Nobody would go out and see. I went out to check on them. They were dead. I grabbed one of them. The other guy came with me, and we we're dragging them back, and they started shooting again at us. We had to drop the guy. The lieutenant said, you, Sergeant Clark, you dropped him. I said he's dead. We continued on. Now we go, I had to regroup everybody in the in the trees. Now we go back. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning. Our side is shooting flares up in the air. And there's this lieutenant. He was a forward observer for artillery. And I'm laying on the ground, this big guy, about 6'3", you know, 2'30". He took off his helmet, and he was wiping his head, you know? I'm right beside him. And the shell from one of those flares came down, hit him in the head. Killed him. So I wasn't attached to any squad then, because I was short. I wasn't supposed to be out there. I was supposed to be going home in 15 days. So my old squad, we had to, I had to get them together to carry this dead lieutenant and we got them all together and I was taking packs I had the two I had their two packs of the guys that got killed earlier I had their packs on my back then I had my old my old squad and I had to get their packs and put them I had about maybe 6 or 7 maybe 8 packs on my back you know and we started heading back and We came to a railroad tire bridge. You know, you could walk across like that, but your squad can't go there because you're carrying a dead guy in a poncho. You know, and this guy was heavy. So we we had to go down around to the left to the village and make a sharp right. I guess over 200 guys went and made that right turn. Everybody was stepping to the high side and then coming back down. This one guy, you know, He wouldn't go to the high side, and he was standing right behind me. He stepped on the booby track. I didn't hear nothing. All I seen was, (laughs) these flashes, red, green, yellow, didn't feel nothing. Next, I was like, oh man, what happened? And I'm hit in the back of the head and the butt. And all that gear I had on was blown off me. I don't know where it went. So they're taking me to the helicopter. Lieutenant said, Sergeant Clark, where are you going? I said, I'm wounded. Okay, so they take me and put me beside this dead lieutenant. And I'm laying there looking at him, and I know I got like 15 days to do, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, I can't walk. And, uh put me on the helicopter, put me on first, no, put the dead guy on first, put me on last, so when we get to the Medifac area, they're going to take me off first. So the helicopter came in, you know, the pilot was nervous, you know, had to be nervous. He came in and he hit the ground, bam! And he spun around, kicked up all that dirt. We got on the helicopter. He was going to sneak along the ground and get up and go up. He snuck along the ground, all right, but he flew right into where they were at. And I'm laying there, and I see, I see bullet holes coming all through the helicopter. We hit a tree, flipped over in the river. I don't know where I got that it, you know, the strength from. But next thing I know, I was standing up on the uh, bank. And uh, the officer said, you know how to get back? And I says, yeah, yeah, I know how to get back. So I'm leading them back, and I hear people, the closer we got to the lines, I hear people, you know, sending home rifle, you know, rounds, and I start cussing and hollering at them. Don't you, so-and-so, don't you better not fire you, so-and-sos. So the officer came over, he said, Sergeant Clark, you want another helicopter? I says, no, sir. He said, what you gonna do? I said, number one. I didn't have no helmet, no flight jacket, no rifle, nothing, because I was stripped of all that, you know. When we got to the, you know, to the bottom of our hill a couple miles away, he said, where's the uh, wounded guy? He said, he's coming. He's coming. I get up there. He said to me, where's the wounded guy? He didn't, even, he didn't know to even notice I didn't have on a helmet. I didn't have no flight jacket. I didn't have anything, but he was wondering, oh, Nothing's wrong with him," he said. "Okay, get on the truck," and they took me up to the hill, took me back to the aid station on the hill, and I hear another. Blah, 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 I said, "Oh God!" I said, "You got another helicopter?" I said, "Oh man!" I said, "I could walk back to name, you know," but they put me in another helicopter, and I can see off in the distance. I can see off in the distance. Denang I said, oh man, come on, come on, come on, come on. And once they got me back to Da my legs and everything stiffed up again, and I couldn't move. Because that there, that last month of July, 1967, was the worst. On July 4th, we got the, you know, you're always getting to hear, you're always hearing they're coming tonight. At 12 o'clock sharp. A guy on the outpost said, there's a million of them coming up. And we were on a mountain. When you wake up in the morning, the uh, clouds is down below. He said, there's a million coming up on you. And we heard all this noise and all this banging. And out of 50, 50, 60 guys, only four of us came off the hill (laughs) without a scratch. I seen my, you know, it's one thing to see body bags, but it's another thing to put bodies in the bag. And I would say, oh, man. And I would say, man, I just can't wait. I'm getting back. I ain't never going to extend. I ain't, that was it. I did my service for my country. That was it.
0: Can I ask you one final question? Yeah. Uh, you joined the Marines. Horrible, harrowing experience, and yet here you are with a USMC hat and shirt. Yeah. Obviously, you're you're proud. Yeah, I'm proud of the organization. Is the organization is great,
5: but you got a lot of dummies, a lot of idiots. You know, they sit over there in the Navy Academy, then they switch over to the Marine Corps, and they're don't even know how to read a map unless they're looking at terrain. Well. I was at, I could be facing backwards, and I know, upside down. <laughs> and the guy, you know, that's another one real quick. This captain up there with his legs crossed. I said, oh man, it's that Sergeant Clark. I said, oh, what does this joker want? I get up there, and he's like, okay, over there is vintage, over there is this. And once you take your squirt and pow! Guy was in the corner about 100 yards away. People start firing down, and this thumb captain, he sits back up in the same spot, calling me over again to go over (laughs) the same thing that he had just told me. I'm saying this, and I'm laying, I'm laying, oh, there's a kid there, I'm laying. He's getting a real education this morning. And I'm laying, I was like, this officer is stupid. I'm laying almost, got my head in his lap, you know? Yeah, keeping your head down. Uh, it looked like I was giving him some head. <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh, oh no. Then he fired again. And all you heard was the captain screaming like a pig. He had got shot. And it, the bullet hit the side of his helmet. And shattered, and he was screaming, and I said, "Oh God!" But that was it, you know. And I was, I was, proud of the Marine Corps. It was just
0: the idiots <laughs> that was in the Marine Corps. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate that. Yeah.
7: John, John, what unit was you with? Over
5: over?
7: Yeah. Two five
5: and then two twenty
7: six. Who was you with with two five? Because what you were saying sounded familiar. He's two five.
5: Oh, okay. Uh, Fox
7: Company and... Uh, You're talking... Golf. I, I was with golf.
5: We got overran at the, on, on top of uh, the coal mine? Yeah. July uh, 4th, 67?
7: You were with Melvin Newland.
5: Melvin Newland was awarded the uh, Medal of Honor. And when I was playing football for the Marine Corps when I got back, they called me and wanted me to come up to D.C. for the ceremony. And I said, I don't know Melvin Newland. And it was my job on top of the hill to go around and pick up all the dead guys, me and the squad, pick up all the dead guys and lay them out on the hill. But they said somehow I was one of the sergeants that wrote him up for the Medal of Honor and received it. But I couldn't remember all the names.
0: So you two were in the same battalion? same same company. Same company. Melvin. We you yes. were in the same company at the same time. I come over in November.
7: Melvin was my cousin. Oh. Him and I went in the Marine Corps together.
0: Okay. He was one of those guys? One of the five. George, can you tell the group, you, you grew up uh, in, in, it was at East Liverpool? Wellsville, Ohio. Wellsville, Ohio. And tell the group how you decided to join the Marines. <laughs> there were
7: five of us. Um, we were out along the riverbank, drinking beer one night. How old? Well, I was going to be 16 in a few days. <laughs> and uh, we had a couple guys that were older. And one guy, his uh, dad had been in the Marine Corps, uh, Madden. His his dad had been on EWO. And we always loved and respected him. so. We thought that we would all go in. We went in at varying times. Melvin went in about three months before me, him and Ernie. Ernie got killed in May of 67. I went to his funeral before I left for boot camp. Melvin got killed July 4th of 67. I was in boot camp. Third guy that went in with me, He got killed in October of 68. I ended up going to his funeral when I come home. And you barely made it. And I barely made it, yes. So out of the five kids who were sitting on that riverbank, three were killed in Vietnam. Three were killed. And this is you. And that's me. (laughs) Not much difference, is there?
0: (laughs) 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 Do you want me to go ahead and talk or... Why don't you go ahead and talk? I know that I, I know that we had a, we have a couple World War II veterans, Beverly. I see you. Don't hide. A couple World War II veterans here, and I'd love to just have them at least uh-huh. introduce themselves at some point. But but why don't you go ahead? And I guess this is in a sense what John missed, uh, because John left. You know, you you rotated out when August August '67. So he wasn't there for the Tet Offensive like you were. No. He was not. No. no. no, no, no. I came into 2-5
7: on November 4th of 67. Right after what you said was Operation Essex, I came in toe end that. And uh, it, was, it was an awakening, and then January 31st, 1968, was a very large awakening for me.
0: That was the first day of the Tet Offensive. First day of the Tet Offensive.
7: My company and another company from 1-1 were Told to take and go into Way City. There was a small infiltration unit that we need to take and clear out. So we grounded our packs, headed up in a convoy, get to the outskirts of town. Started getting fire. First thing we seen when we jumped off the trucks was a blowed out tank. We knew if they could take out a tank, that you know we were go- we would be very fair game. So there were 300 of us initially going in. The few hundred that they thought would be in there turned out to be 16,000. We fought the battle for 31 days. I'm, I'm one of the few Marines that made the whole 31 days of the battle. Uh,
0: That's your gun platoon?
7: That is the gun platoon. And I caught up with some of these guys a few weeks ago. Well, one of them that... The only people that are still alive are the three people on that side. The rest the rest got killed in way. So you are here. There might be some people in there that you recognize. Some of them would have been at the tail end of when you were there. George, which one is you on the
0: left? Right up there. Up here? Yep. Is that Clyde Carter? That's Clyde. I yes. can tell by his ears. Yes. Here's another picture of him.
7: Yeah. Clyde was one of the first gunners that we lost. Uh it took us five hours to fight our way into the MACV compound. and Here's a map of Way City,
0: I'm showing them. This is the okay. MACV compound.
7: It took us five hours to fight our way into there. It was a quarter of a mile from where we initially got hit. We had to go through and kick down doors and root the enemy out. We get to the MACV compound and uh, we got orders to take and go across Perfume River Bridge.
0: Which is right here.
7: Correct. And we were supposed to go and extract a South Vietnamese general. We get going across the bridge, halfway across, started getting rockets, mortars, machine gun fire. We run across the bridge. We get to the other side, and the picture just you shows you Clyde. He was setting up to counter a thirty-caliber machine gun that was in a bunker at the end of the bridge. Clyde took I don't know. 10, 15 rounds, and he went down. I was the next gun up. I was, I was running up to set up, and Marine in front of me jumped out, pulled a couple grenades, threw his rifle over his shoulder, pulled the pins as he was running across the bridge. He got to about where Clyde was, seen the spoons pop, kept running directly at the bunker, took the bunker out took his rifle down, went up, and fired a burst in. From there, we had to take and go down to where you see the Imperial Palace of Peace. That was the Citadel. We get about halfway to that wall, two gun towers opened up on us, 30 calibers. They had flanking fire down on us. Along that wall, there was two levels. We were getting hit with light machine guns beside the 30 cows and the small weapons. We fought and we battled there for about two hours. Do you want me to tell? Because... Oh, I'm gonna try. Okay. We ran out of ammunition. Look up and down the line. See the riflemen fixing their bayonets. Those those of us who had sidearms took them out. I said to my gunner, I said, "See you up above." About that point, a gunny from the other company come across because he had heard no return fire to what we were getting in. So he figured you were out of ammunition. Yes. He commandeered a truck. He come across, and he opened up with the 50 caliber. That was the only thing that saved our lives. They started concentrating on him. We loaded up the 55 bodies that we had lost. There was 150 of us that went over. We had one body that was out in the street, we had made three attempts to try and Get the marine because we would we don't go leave without him. So we got some smoke off of the gunny, through it. We was finally able to extract him. We got it back across the bridge. I was just telling about this earlier this morning. The gunny had actually disobeyed a direct order to come and get us. He got killed about a week and a half later, or he'd probably got court martialed. For saving our lives. And I, I know what you mean about stupid officers. <laughs> but for me, and it was, you know, it was probably the most harrowing experience that I ever had in my life. And over 31 days, it really didn't get
0: all that much better. And, and that's the thing, it wasn't just that one day, it was day after day after day of this. Right. And you were. Uh, kind of hold up in the MACV compound and they were assaulting it and you had to fend them that, off that
7: night Yes after we come back. We were supposed to take and go back out into the city on a night patrol and They saved us the problem because they started dumping mortars in We knew as soon as the mortar stopped that they was going to come so they started coming wave after wave and it just like shooting ducks in the gallery it was a light rain, and just like there was a river of blood flowing in front of the MACB. Every assault, we, we fought back. We took on two assaults, and I was telling Nick briefly about one Marine, a black man from Philadelphia, best Marine I ever served with. His name was Horace Howard. Within a 12-hour period, Horace got shot seven times before he got shot in the head and ended his life. And we had, we had had two or three dozen in the wire, and there were three right around Horace when we found him at daybreak. So I know where you're at, brother.
0: Thank you very much, George. Thank you. Here are some pictures of Way City uh, when, during the Battle of Way City, during the Tet Offensive. This is a university building. George, you were all through that, clearing that out of the enemy. It, uh, it took us 12
7: hours to, to clear out the university. They had about a battalion within, inside the university. They sent 200 of us in. What you're seeing there is about a third of the complex We lost 35 guys running across. There was a 50 caliber that was just eating us up, and it was blowing all of the trees and everything away. One corner there, you'll see a door. That was my entry point. I took an M60 and I blew the glass out of the door. We entered through there. I had my gun team plus four-man fire team, and it just uh, 12 hours, you know, room by room. Through that complex, I think by the, by the end of the day, we had probably lost over half of the people that we went in with, either dead or wounded. Uh,
0: you know, the, the John's story and George's story reminds me, I, I've known George since April, and we've talked about his service, and I, I think it dawned on me very early on that I know still this much about George's story. And every time I talk to George, he tells me something new. And that's just how these events go. I, I realize when you, know, when you have the mic for five minutes, that's all you could really say, you know, just give you a hint of what, what your service has been like. And you told, I, I asked George, do you remember coming home? And he said, literally no, because <laughs> I was unconscious. Uh, you woke up in a Philadelphia hospital, right? Right, my, my third
7: purple heart, I I stepped on a mine, put me up above the palm trees. Twenty people around me, you know, got killed and wounded. Yeah. I got knocked out in some shrapnel. Felt like hell for a long time.
0: Can I ask you, George, and this is really putting you on the spot, and maybe somebody else here could answer this too. After surviving all that, you know, three, your three guys in your company survived, I, I think, the about Three guys a, three, in your platoon. Guys
7: pl- gun platoon, in yes. In your gun
0: platoon survived. After, you know, getting wounded three times, coming home, here you are, you know, years later. Do you feel like you somehow won the lottery or somehow got a gift of the rest of your life that other people didn't get? Yes.
7: You know, it's just, I look and I wonder myself, you know, how? Like like I've told you, you know, I've I've studied the history of the battle, you know, from a military standpoint, an educational standpoint, to see, you know, what did what did I do differently? You know, why why did I survive this, and so many guys, bigger, stronger, faster, smarter, didn't? It wasn't your turn. And maybe it's maybe it's to come out here and do stuff like this, and get to meet somebody that was with my cousin. I mean, when you started telling that story, I knew exactly what you. And it's Hill 661 in the coal mine. Nicole. Yes. I was
5: one of the guys that picked him up and put him in a body bag.
7: I'll have to take and bring his citation here. Please do. See, that was something that I never told Todd. They have a highway back home in Wellsville named after him. I was there for the dedication. Another guy that I went in that I went to the funeral with, Ernie Madden, he was a Silver Star recipient. He has
0: another highway named after him. Thank you so much, George. I do thank you, Ben. If you could, Beverly, I'm sorry to do this to you. I know that you're going to be mad at me, uh, but I just saw Beverly. I didn't know that you were going to be here today. This is Beverly Krieger, and I always thought, you know, we have a couple World War II veterans here. You're a World War II veteran. You are an Army.: Yes. Army Whack.
2: Right. Right. Women's
0: Army Corps.
2: Right. Well, I went in when it was the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. Correct. And then went into the other. And uh, the stories that I have to tell compared to what these other gentlemen tell, it's way down. No, no, no. So, but I was always with the postal unit, and uh, it was in Fort Custer, Michigan at first. Then I was sent over to England with the, where all the mail for the Army came in. That was with the first base post office in England. And one little story I have to tell you, just the opposite of what the other gentlemen have said. I was in a pub in England, and a young soldier comes up to me and taps me on the shoulder and says, you're from Meadville, aren't you? (laughs) Well, I was. Then uh, uh, back in those days, because he'll ask me why I went in, uh, back in those days, to join the, the WAC, you had to be 21. And back in those days, you want to get out in your own apartment? No, 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 no. So it was a way to get away from mommy. Two years ago, a great-granddaughter said to me, you didn't go in to get away from mommy. You went in to prove that you could go out on your own, which is true. And my last story is that I was in Paris on VE Day. So that's about it.
0: We want to hear about Paris on VE Day. Big party, celebration, celebration.
2: Well, the parade, but other than that, okay. I, I didn't get involved in much.
0: Did okay. Did you kiss the sailor? No. You didn't kiss any sailors? I didn't
2: kiss anybody. <laughs> but it was good to be able to be there near the Arc de Triomphe and waving. Oh, one other thing that happened was I was near the Eiffel Tower, and a plane flew under the Eiffel Tower, a very small one. And in Paris, that is illegal.
0: And Beverly, I do want to tell the group I do teach history, and so I think people, especially younger people here today, need to know that when the Army decided that they were going to admit women, women who weren't nurses, it was extremely controversial. Uh, I mean, the Navy had an even harder time allowing women in in World War II. But that bill that went through Congress to pass the wax in 1942 did not pass by much. The Catholic Church was against it. A lot of army generals uh, were against it. A guy named Dwight Eisenhower said, over his dead body will women serve. He later said it was the stupidest thing he ever said. Uh, But it, it was a very controversial thing. So I imagine maybe you're Father wasn't happy about you joining the WACs? No, he wasn't.
2: But the first time I came home, he had me all over town showing me <laughs> off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I know we also have Lou Mephrys. Lou, would you mind standing up? I notice your hat and you're a World War II veteran. Fortunately, I, I
8: did survive every battle. Well, I'm 95 years old. Okay,
0: going to be 95 Hold on. Beverly, how old are you? 95. Yeah, and, and I, I gotta say this. I was
8: drafted, that was back in 1942. I was put into the 13th Armor Division, which is a tank outfit, and the only division in the United States Army that was permitted to wear the cap on the other side of the head. I've heard about that. Why is that? Because it was number 13, and 13 was always a number of itself. So we were the 13th Armored Division, and we trained in Camp Bill, California, and and then we went down into Camp Bowie, Texas, because we had to have the proper terrain for our tanks. So under all this supervision and training, and so forth, then and then in in '42, uh, and then we went across seas, and it. We went over to New York, and it took us eleven days across the ocean to go into, right into France. Uh, it we, they took us up around the Canadian, uh, around Canada, and so forth and so on. I thought I thought we'd never hit there, but after we got in in close to Europe, when it was dark, they said, "Okay, it's time you're going into La Havre." So we went into La Havre. And the battles were raging, as you know. And I got to say this, that uh, I am quite fortunate that I came out alive. And then from then on in, we kept battling across France. And then I finally did get hit just prior to going to Paris, when we're going into Paris. And then fortunately, I recovered in very shortly. And then from Paris after Paris, prior to going to the, uh, the to the Rhine River, our general got shot and he was put out of service. We had a big battle right there at in Alsace Lorraine. It was a tremendous battle where he got taken out of service. We got a new general. We and uh, then we headed for the uh, for the Rhine River, and we had to battle the Rhine there, which was immense and. Uh, Fortunately, they made me a radio operator where I could I could communicate and maneuver about more so than just being in, in the half track. And so I, I was able to get about and communicate with everybody and, and inform everybody what was going on and how we were going to get there. And we got to the Rhine River, and then we had uh, tremendous battles. Uh, like I said, uh, our troops did a tremendous... Oh, they did great. And then... And I was quite fortunate. Always, always praying, believe me. And then we got to the Rhine. And once we got to the Rhine, we had to get find a way how to get across into German proper. And then... After a while, after they had cleared out and the battles kept going, they finally got us across over and onto the main part of Germany. And the, and the Germans had an autobahn similar to ours here where travel could go very easily. It was like our turnpike. In fact, I understand that's where we got our idea from them. And then we uh, we start moving into Germany slowly because they were they 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 were really pounding us with the eighty eight I have never ever, and i'm I believe this I heard a lot of guns, but that german eighty eight was the most intense it destroyed everything. it just scared you when you heard go i know just when I heard it go off i i I would shake all over it it was a tremendous gun, so then we went on in we start going into German proper and finally after we had pushed the Germans back and, and, and they, be, they begin to the retreat, then where they had all the uh, prisoners of war and all them, well, we were able to release them all. And they all, oh, they come running out of there. And uh, the, all the Polish Jews, and, and uh, they just came at us and just hugged us. And oh, they did everything. In fact. It got to the point where a couple of even they said they wanted to come. I couldn't understand them, and they couldn't understand me, but they wanted so much to be with me. So I said, okay. I said, I'll take one of you. So what I did is I took one of them with me, although I couldn't understand, and he could And I knew that he knew that the terrain in Bavaria because that was our next movement into Bavaria. And I knew he would know the terrain, being Polish Jew and everything in that area. And I said he would be very helpful. Like I say, we couldn't communicate, but he would show me, uh, you know, figuratively. And so he would bring me through there, and so. I finally, after we got into a tremendous battle, the general said to me, he says, Lou, he said, I want you to get a driver, and I want you to go to the Rhine River, he says. now, And he says, I want you to go and see what's going on. And I said, why are you picking me? He says, I ain't picking you. I want you and I want your driver to go out there and find out what is in store for us in the future? So I I said, all right then. I, of course, I had to follow orders, and I went across the Rhine, and and we went down to the, to the river, and said uh, to the Inn River. And as I'm looking at the driver and I, and I said, I'm looking out all around, and all at once, I see a, a tremendous amount of men coming at me, and I'm wondering. Uh, and I said to my driver, "Look, I says, look at that. Look, look, look. I said it got to be the Russians because they're not shooting at me. I'm here alone where I'm, they can see me. And I said it has to be the Russians." And they come at me, and they come, and I just stood there with my driver, and I said, well, "There's nothing else I can do." So they come at me, and the gentleman, they they all stopped, and then the commanding officer came up to me. He saluted me, and he said, "I'm the I'm the head of the Hungarian Navy." He says, "I want to surrender to you." I says, "You want to surrender to me?" I says, "Wait a minute!" I said, "I'm only a corporal. I got to call my." <laughs> Yeah, really, and this is a gospel truth. I said, i got to call my commanding officer. I can't do this. So I called back to my commanding officer, and he came up, and he said, okay, okay corporal, get across that river and get moving. He said, I'll take care of this. I said, great. So, so after a few battles, we crossed the end river, and we're going up into Austria. And after a couple of more and more, a couple of battles in Austria, we get up there to Hitler's home. Well, I was able to get in into Hitler's home, and the only one there was Hitler's maid. You know, Hitler committed suicide, and and that's the only one was his maid there. And so what what we did is we took over control of that whole area, and we looked naturally at all the the places he had, the Eagle's Peak got over in Austria, and the home that he, the, he and the high Germans had were tremendous. They had big movie halls and everything, and it, it was terrific. And up and up Eagle's Peak, he could see everything. And so, after a while, we stayed there. They says, you're gonna, okay, he says, now, 13th Armored, I want you to go back into Bavaria, and you're gonna take care and patrol all Bavaria. And... This is one thing you got to do. There's a general order out. You cannot speak to any German girl. Any if you're at any time speaking to a German girl, any noncom would lose their stripes. You lost your stripes automatically. So consequently, we had to stay away from all the German girls, and uh, we had to select. We, we had to select the house that we wanted. To patrol Bavaria and so we we patrolled Bavaria for it was something it was six weeks the first three weeks we couldn't patronize or like I said talk to any women but after three weeks we were permitted and then and then after six weeks they withdrew our division back to France and back to and come back into uh, into Washington DC and there they uh, they cleaned us all up and made us uh, feel like a million dollars. And then they sent us home for a vacation. For, they gave us a 40-day leave, which was nice. I was there, I guess, in within one week, we, I got a telephone call. Report to Camp Cook, California in a hurry. You're going to Japan. And I thought, oh, boy, this is great. So I got this on This is the- great. <laughs> I I I well of course I, when I, I said I said to my wife, I said, My God, I says, I can't believe this. So I got on the train, I got a special pass and all, and went to Camp Cook, California. And then the thirteenth Armored Division was getting prepared to go overseas to Japan. Well, fortunately, The Japanese surrendered. We were all ready to go. And they rescinded that order. They says, no, 13th Armored Division doesn't need to go because the Japanese have surrendered. So then now it was a question of how we were going to get back. They come out with a point system, you know. And we all had sufficient amount of points in relation to the battles and everything that we were in. And so we were eligible for discharge. So I thought, well, since I'm eligible for discharge, I may as well take it. After all, the point system's there and I'm gonna use the point system. I said, after all, I says I did what I could, everything that I could do. So uh, they give us the point system and I got and I got my discharge and I it, right, they sent us back to Pennsylvania to to get me discharged here, so
0: that's that's, that's a little, little bit of your story. Thank you so that, much, that Lou. was uh, we have some we have a few questions. What was your pay, Lou? Oh, you know,
8: it was so small I can't even remember. I don't remember getting it.
4: <laughs> that's that's all. You yeah, said. yeah.
8: I didn't have any, I didn't have that, I really didn't have that much money. I I think it was, that was, oh well, let's see now.
0: It started out at $21 a month in 1942, and it went all the way up, I think, to about $50 a month. You're
8: right, it was $20, and then, but you had to give uh, an allotment. You, you had to give so much to your wife. They yes. took that on. And so, what, what I ended up with was so very little that, uh, see, because I was married at the time, and I'm married 73 years.
0: Oh! Yes. Yes. Lou, you have a
8: you have something to
6: say, a question? To yeah, have? um, you know, this gentleman was talking about the stuff that he went through in World War II and when he came home how people embraced him and stuff. Well, I'm a Vietnam vet, and I'm gonna tell you, when I came home, they treated me like crap. I was ashamed to wear the uniform that I served with, you know, because people were calling us baby killers and stuff like that. You know what I mean? I'd go to the local bar, people wouldn't buy me a drink. The VFWs and the organizations didn't want no part of us. It took a while for us to get immaculated into those organizations. I mean, we really got treated like crap, you know? And I wanna say this, you know, anytime that we have people out in combat and fighting for our country, we should embrace them you know because we're the ones that bring the troops home and we bring glory to this country you know what i'm saying so to treat us the way that they did
0: there was no ticker tape there was no parades there was just hatred we hear that a lot you can imagine at our breakfast it is striking Uh, you vietnam veterans uh, different from the current veterans from the World War II, even from Korea, people didn't talk to the people coming back from Korea. But they didn't. They didn't. Uh, there wasn't the hatred. It's. I think it's hard. I. I teach college, and, I, and so my students are often 20 years old. They can't understand how you guys were treated when you came home. They can't. Why? Why was it that way? And but. It, but it's striking. It's hard to. It's hard to hear what you just said. But we hear it all the time, and it's very true. So thank you for. Uh, I was a medic
6: in Vietnam, and most of the guys, when they got wounded, they always hollered for mama. They never thought about dad.
8: Beverly Jim. wanted to say one thing.
2: I just, one thing I wanted to say was, uh, this is a little off the subject on what, on what they were saying yeah. about the other war, but at the end, when at, on VJ Day, there was no celebration whatever in Paris. Only on VE Day, but
0: none on VJ on Day. On VJ Day. Jim, did you have a question? Yeah. It all started to turn
4: around in the 80s. Everybody decided that the Vietnam vet was, wasn't treated properly. And there were parades everywhere. I went to one in Chicago. There were parades in New York. Everybody had a parade for the Vietnam vet. And the first one that I remember here was the parade that runs from Brookline down, down the street and over into Dormont and ends the, the, the uh, c- cemetery in Mount Lebanon. And uh, we were a bunch of guys, Vietnam Veterans Incorporated, and we had on T-shirts that said Vietnam Veteran and a hat. And we didn't know if we were going to make that turn on to 19 on West Liberty Avenue and get stoned or what. And a cheer rose, and we just stopped. And that was 1982. That was 1982. We just stopped. We, didn't, we couldn't believe that people actually accepted us. Yeah. And that group, which I am a life member of, but I no longer work with their color guard, their color guard is called on two, three times, four times a month Very to represent all the services, all the wars.
0: They are respected. We are respected. A little late, but there have been well, some tomorrow, thank yous. Brothers. Chuck, you had something to say?
3: I've said it before, everybody is my hero here, men and women who served the military, no matter what your job was. And some jobs were no more important than others because everyone had a job to do. But I'm 23 years younger than this young man and young woman, veteran. And it doesn't look it, but I'm 72. What, you
0: look a lot older?
3: (laughs) But my heart's desire is you guys come from the, the best generation. And not to put you on a silver platter, but you're my heroes. And hopefully 20 years from now, Todd's doing this, and he still has my pictures, 20 years from now, um, I can stand up, I'll, I'll be 92, and I'll say, I was in support with, with, in Vietnam, I did my best.
0: Yes, that's and, gonna happen.
3: And I'll be, I'll be in Vietnam, that'll be 70 years I'll be in Vietnam, and that's my, that's my goal in life.
0: You'll get there, Chuck. Hey, before we end, or we're, we're past time, and I'm sorry about that, this was made possible because of a group of young veterans uh, from the community leadership uh, for, for veterans. And I'd, um, I'd like you guys, the young vets who put this together, could you please stand up? Thank you very much for making this possible. We didn't get to you and your stories yet. Um, But you have stories to share and I just want to thank you and thank vintage for hosting us here We would love to do this again before then we would love to have any of you come to any of our events and Share your stories and your perspectives no matter how hard those stories are to hear people like me need to hear them, you know people who who didn't serve people who are teaching you know, young people. We need to hear the stories no matter how hard they are to share. So please do come. Thank you so much for coming today. This has been a live recording of the Veterans Breakfast Club. For more information about our local storytelling events and how veterans can preserve their stories for future generations, call 412 623 9029 or visit our website at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Thanks for listening.